Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Here's Frank, Scott, Chris, and Adam. Happy Hump Day, everybody. Welcome to Fantasy Baseball Today. It is Wednesday, May 27th. Frank Stanfield here alongside Pocket Aces, Adam Azer, Scotty Dubs, Scott White. What's going on, fellas? How you doing? Good. Chilling. 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 I sent out a tweet last night regarding, there was a question that was asked on Twitter. It was, what was your batting stance that you imitated most growing up? And I got a lot of interesting responses. And originally I said, if your answer wasn't Gary Sheffield, it's probably the wrong answer. Ooh. It's a good call. Yeah. Gary Easy Sheffield. Easy one to imitate. Easy. It's, I mean, he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame just for that stance, right? Oh, for sure. If there's yeah. a separate wing for stances, yes. <laughs> I mean, um, some might argue he should be in just based on production, but... Again. Sheffield. I, I mean, I saw some of the answers to this. Jeff Bagwell was a common one, and that's that's for sure. Something that was attempted pretty often. Uh, Andres Galarraga was one I did a lot. How about Craig really? Council? Uh, Craig, I don't remember actually doing Craig Council that much. <laughs> I don't know. Griffey. Griffey was Griffey. a popular one. Like the whole Braves lineup from the mid '90s. Like I, I had that down. Uh, you know, Javi Lopez, Jeff Blauser, Ryan Klesko with the backbend before he stepped into the box. David Justice. David Justice, I feel like, is a good one. Fred McGriff sticking the butt way out. Yeah, those were all those were all attempted. Yeah. Yeah, I uh I used to I thought I used to do a Mattingly because I thought he had this kind of shoulder shimmy, but I, I'm trying to find it and I can't seem to find the shoulder shimmy. But there was something fun about Don Mattingly. Of course I had to do it lefty. <laughs> he had a cool, he had a really cool batting stance. A nice that, crouch. That was something I didn't do. Like if it was a left-handed batter, I wouldn't attempt to do it left-handed. I would just do it from the right-handed side. Mm, that I, doesn't really work, Scott. I'm sorry. Yeah, I always felt like I couldn't do Griffey from the right side. Even though I was a right-handed batter, you can't do Griffey as a righty. It just felt Scott, weird. Yeah, did Scott, did you do Griffey from the right side? Well, you, you have to end it with a swing, right? I, I, I didn't. I wasn't coordinated but enough to swing. No from the righty. Left side. <laughs> no righty has the uppercut swing like Griffey has. That's a that's a purely lefty thing. That's why lefties like the ball low and in. Come on. Listen, Dedicate. I'm not Gar Rhinus. All right, I'm not batting stance guy. <laughs> I just did this for my own personal amusement. Thank you. I think I did a fine job. Yeah. I was amused. Oh, it's because you were playing to uh, an audience of one. <laughs> if you had Twitter existed back then, you would have gotten killed. <laughs> Today on the show, we're going to debate some rankings, how to buy low and sell high. Is it a lost art? Can you still buy low and sell high? We'll talk about that. We have a prospect evaluation for starting pitcher of the Seattle Mariners, Logan Gilbert. Your emails a little bit later on. Fantasy baseball at cbsi.com. But let's start off with some of these rankings debates and I probably should have got your feedback first, Scott, to ask if there was anyone you specifically wanted to debate. So I apologize, but mainly just the biggest. I am, I am down for a debate 
Anywhere, anytime. Just I, I like to be surprised. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Scott hates the rankings debates. <laughs> <laughs> I chose four players, two that I have ranked higher, two that you have ranked higher. So I wanted to make it even, you know, guys that you're a little bit higher on, maybe a little bit lower on than I am. And I wanted to start off with Bryce Harper, who I have as my seventh outfielder in the head-to-head points format. You have him as your 12th outfielder. Not a huge discrepancy. Maybe the biggest discrepancy comes in the auction values that we have. I have him at $36. You have him at $24. So Bryce Harper last year finished as the eighth best outfielder in head-to-head points. He averaged 3.5 fantasy points per game. So on a points per game basis, he was the 13th best outfielder, but accumulative points, he was the eighth best. Got off to a slow start. Mega contract with the Phillies. First two months, hit 248 with a 30% strikeout rate from June 1st on. Hit 267 with a 23.6% strikeout rate. 25 homers with a 903 OPS. Well, what does that mean? From June 1st on, Cody Bellinger hit 262 with a 933 OPS. They really were not that dissimilar from June 1st on. Last season, he walks a ton, over a 14% uh, walk rate for his career, helps in the points format. Uh, He finished with a 260 batting average. His expected batting average was 279. He makes truly elite contact, a 14.8% barrel rate last year, 94th percentile. Uh, And basically, just some of the players you have ranked ahead of him, George Springer, almost guaranteed to miss time. I mean, he misses about 28 games per season. Is that going to be amplified in a shorter Wait a season. Second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Uh-oh. You're you're give, you're saying Harper is a better health bet than George Springer? Like that's just you're just he, assuming that? He I would has say played that, 147 yeah. or more games in four of the last 5 seasons, Bryce Harper. It's yeah, it was underrated. really just 2017. Staying healthy lately. Okay. Yeah. All right. What it, about and George? Let me see George Springer. It was definitely a thing early in his career, like 2013, 2014 missed time. But the past couple of years, specifically the past two, 157 or more games each of the past two seasons. So I think Springer's probably going to miss some time. As I like Cattell Marte, but as much as I like him, I can't take him over Bryce Harper in a in a points format. Charlie Blackman, I, I see the case, but Rockies are kind of frustrating to own in a head-to-head points league because they're really great at home. Not so much on the road. So you need that kind of weekly consistency out of your hitters in a head-to-head points league. So for all those reasons, I have Bryce Harper ranked about five spots higher than you in my outfield ranking, Scott. Okay. All right. So you threw me for a little loop with that injury thing. I, I, To be honest, I had never thought of George Springer as a guy who consistently misses time with injuries. I guess it's always just such a minor thing. It was a strained hamstring last year. He doesn't have that, that moment where, Oh my goodness, he's, he's down and he's, he's grabbing his elbow. Like it hasn't been those kind of instances with George Springer to really stick it stick out in my mind that way. But it is true over the past three seasons, he has missed more time than Bryce Harper. So, putting that aside, um, I guess the the place to start is just how much better George Springer was than Bryce Harper in this format last year. So, 4.11 points per game for George Springer versus 3.48 for Bryce Harper. So, basically, Springer was between Bellinger and Betts in per-game production, and Harper was between 
Max Kepler and Austin Meadows. And I'm not, I mean, he recovered so well in the second half, Harper did, that I'm not really sure the final season line is one I would expect him to improve on. The, you know, he hit 260 and he's done better than that before, but he's been consistently a liability in batting. It's been consistent enough that I no longer really expect him to do much better in batting average. Now, it's, you could certainly make the case George Springer overachieved last year. It was his best season and, and, you know, maybe so, but I think, I think just because it was more recent, I'm more confident in George Springer putting up that MVP type production than I am in Harper right now. So that would be, how far apart do I rank them? Two spots in my outfield rankings. Yeah, I feel good about that. I'm fine with that. What 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 is the specific issue, I guess, is what I'm curious about. I'm just trying to figure out why we have this discrepancy and, and was paying paying attention more so to the players that we have between you and I. Like, you have Harper at 12, so I was looking at the players. Chris Bryant, I mean, we've talked enough about Chris Bryant. You have him one spot ahead yeah. of Bryce Harper, but, I mean, he's another one. Uh, the argument I would, made is, would make is the one that you mentioned, is that last year was a career year for Springer on a per-game basis, so... Is sure. that something we can rely on? In 2018, he averaged three fantasy points per game, whereas Harper was 3.5 again. So Harper has been consistent the past two years. And I think if you take what he did over the course of the final four months of the season where he did get off to a slow start, I mean, if Harper is closer to you know that 900 OPS player, we're probably looking at a very solid top 10 outfielder with the potential to be even better. Yes, I think, I mean, they're in the same tier, I think, in this format specifically, because, you know, it Harper steals potential. He had 15 last year, 13 the year before. It isn't rewarded the same way as it is in 5x5 in five five leagues, so he kind of loses that advantage. And George Springer strikes out at a much lower rate, so he gets an advantage there. George Springer bats very high in a deep Astros lineup, so you know he's going to score a crap load of runs. I think maybe batting average-wise, they're going to be similar. Of course, that doesn't have a direct impact in, in terms of head-to-head points value because it's you know you don't get points for batting average, but the, the hits that feed the batting average you do. Um, it's pretty close. You know, I just... I, I, I just think Springer... Yeah, like I said, the the upside Springer showed last year means more to me than the upside Harper showed, you know, a couple years before that. Mm-hmm. Twenty seventeen, that was Harper's, you know, possible MVP season. He was so good. He averaged four point one two points per game. Charlie Blackman was the number one hitter that year. He averaged four point one one. Blackman wasn't the number one hitter per game, but but he was amazing. You know, Mike Trout averaged four point five that year, but. Uh, since 2017, that's when he only played 111 games, I think, Bryce Harper. But he's still been a top 10 outfielder, a top eight outfielder both years. In fact, in points leagues, you know, so it's just to sum up Bryce Harper. Um, he has been in his last four healthy seasons, a top eight outfielder in points leagues all four times and a top nine outfielder in roto leagues, five by five with batting average 
three or four times. If you're going in with an OBP league, he's even better because he is a batting average liability. The thing that concerns me with Harper is the strikeout rate keeps climbing. It's 24.3% in 2018, 26.1% last year. He's got to get that under control. Um, I'd take Springer in a points league, and I didn't know that I would until we just had this discussion now, but I'd do it <laughs> just because of the plate appearances. He he is such a... He, he's probably going to lead the league, going to lead baseball in plate appearances or be like top three, and that's so important in points leagues. In a uh, road and, league... And, point, and points and, and plate appearances per game if we're, <laughs> if we're apparently factoring in this injury risk for Springer. I guess so, yeah. Um, in a roto league, I don't know who I take. I know I would take Harper in a roto league that was OBP. Uh, I expect him to steal more. I expect him to homer probably a little bit more. Counting stats will be pretty similar, but I'd probably give a slight edge to Harper. I mean, the guy just he drives in a ton of runs. He'll score a hundred runs. He's a little underrated because he's so streaky. I think uh, you do have to keep that in mind in a short season. He often gets off to like blistering starts, and then he's terrible. Last year it was. Got off to a bad start and was really good. Yeah, he's frustrating because he's so streaky. But at the end of the day, it's hard to argue with a top eight outfielder in points leagues in each of his last four healthy seasons. And by the way, the one year where he wasn't healthy, he was one of the best players in baseball. He had 1,000 OPS that year. Uh, so the strikeout, if he can keep the strikeouts under control, he could really be a steal. Even in the third round, he could be a steal. But he's got, he's got some risk in his profile because he Ks so much now. Yeah, Harper's ADP 22.8, so teetering on a late second, early third round pick. Uh, I like the fact that he improved those strikeouts as the season went on, so hopefully that's something that he can carry over, and hopefully I've convinced Scott to move him slightly up his head-to-head points rankings. Nah, nope. Sorry. Damn. All right, well, <laughs> I'll have to try on the next player. Hyunjin Ryu. Ah. Scott has 33rd at SP, starting pitcher in Roto. I have him 41st, so Mm. I have him about eight spots lower in Roto. And the three things that I'm focusing on with Ryu is, obviously the change of scenery means he'll face tougher opponents in the American League East, and frankly has a below average Blue Jays defense behind him. The Dodgers last year were plus 126 in defensive runs saved. That was the best in baseball. The Blue Jays, however, uh, had exactly zero defensive runs saved, which ranked 19th. And before last season, uh, we know that the injuries have been prevalent for Ryu. Just 82.1 innings in 2018, 126.2 in 2017. Uh, Can he stay healthy? And then just natural regression, right? I mean, 82% strand rate. You know, how much is that going to drop year over year for Ryu? So I've seen him be kind of a polarizing player in both, you know, ADP and, and rankings. But Scott, I'm a little bit lower than than you on Ryu. Yeah. Yeah. I'd be interested in knowing, I mean, 44 sounds so low. I I have him toward the back end of the 35. I keep referring to, and look, he was a Cy Young contender last year and you know, he was even better in 2018. It was injury shortened. You mentioned there's an injury history there and that's fine. But as good as he was last year, he was even better for the 15 starts. He made in 2018 actually has a 221 ERA in 44 starts over the past two years, Ryu does. I think, you know, that statistically, the, the supporting stats suggest he probably won't be quite that good again, but you're talking about an ERA right around three in terms of what we can expect it to be. He is one of the 
very best in baseball at inducing ground balls and at avoiding walks, which helps him survive with a subpar strikeout rate, uh, which helps him dominate with a subpar strikeout rate. And I, I just think the batting, the the ERA is so safe. I'm not again. I'm not saying it'll be quite as good as it was last year, but uh, low threes, and you're just not going to find that kind of safety from any of the pitchers you're going to get in the, in the round 40 range in, in, in the, in the 40 range of the rankings that you're talking about. So Adam, this is an interesting one for you because you have mentioned you rely on the eye test. You don't necessarily put as much stock into things like XFIP or Sierra where last year, you know, Ryu's Sierra was three, seven, seven compared to his two, three, two ERA. The projection systems on fan graphs, hate Ryu. They have him for anywhere from a 3.78 ERA to a 4.28. So do you stand closer to those projections or do you look at the ERA that he's provided the past couple of seasons and you're like, what? I can, I can trust. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So the, you're not talking about like XFIP or you're not talking about the, the ERA estimators. You're talking about. No, a, from a like ATC. System. I know okay. you guys have had Ariel Cohen on before. Yeah. Uh, the bat projections from Derek Hardy, steamer projections. They all have him for. You know, between okay. a three seven eight and a four two eight ERA. Because just for okay, so f- just to put it out there, since I brought it up, and since you know, to contrast there, uh, last year Ryu's FIP was three ten, his ex FIP was three thirty two, his ex ERA was, which is the new stat that Statcast put out there is three forty three. Sierra's actually pretty high. Sierra's closer to those projections. It's three seventy seven. All right, sorry, Adam. Go ahead. What a world! What a world we live in. Four yeah. different projections, or four different <laughs> estimators, all different. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think three forty. If I were if the uh, the AERA, the Adam ERA, he is three forty <laughs> for for this upcoming year. That's my projection. Uh, look, you can't deny he's been a much better pitcher at home than on the road with the Dodgers. Two sixty two ERA at home, three thirty five on the road. Uh, his his ground ball rate was almost two to one ground ball to fly ball ratio last year. Very, very high for him. He's usually very good, but not that good. So he'll be worse than he was last year at a 232 ERA. There's no question. I think the competition is going to get so much harder for him. Um, not just facing the AL East, but also the NL East is going to have some good hitters too. And the ballpark sucks. Uh, I can't imagine the bullpen's going to be as good as the Dodgers, but I, I don't know that off the top of my head. Uh, so... I don't love him. I just, I look at where he is in Scott's rankings, Hyunjin Ryu, and I wonder who you have ahead of him. I don't think I could put Julio Arias ahead of him. I think Otani will be better per inning, per start, but I don't know how many starts he makes. Bumgarner, no. Max Freed, you know, it's a leap of faith. I could see it. Matt Boyd, Eduardo Rodriguez, Nelson Lamette. Yeah, I, I mean, I he, it, it. it seems it seems like he's going more for the upside plays there ahead of Ryu when I'm kind of uh, particularly at starting pitcher where there's so much downside and where it's such a steep drop off. He's kind of like the safety valve in my rankings where, OK, I don't I don't want to take a chance on those upside guys when I know I have somebody really good already. And if I'm drafting a pitcher at that at the point where Ryu's going off the board, it's because. Uh, my pitching staff needs help. Like I probably haven't yeah. supplied it as well as I need to. So yeah, but, that's that's why I put Ryu where I have him. But but if he has a 3.40 ERA for the Blue Jays, I don't know he's going to get a ton of wins with that. 
And if he was only striking out, say, 8.2 batters per nine, mm-hmm. he's probably not that that big of a fantasy asset. Well, I'm, I'm thinking, you know, if you're pegging him for a 340 ERA, I'd probably agree with you. I'm thinking more like what he had in the second half, which was 318 after a 173 ERA in the first half. I'm, I'm thinking more low threes than mid threes. And uh, I think that would be enough to to make a difference there. But, you know... Maybe not. It, it's hard to it's hard to predict how exactly that transition from NL West to AL East is going to go. Um, yeah, I just think like the the skills are so the skills that he does have with the ground balls and the walks, the control. It's so apparent and has demonstrated it, you know, beyond everybody's expectations for in back to back years now. Uh, the effect that it's had for him. That I I feel really confident in how Ryu is going to perform. Yeah, it's he's going to be like Kyle Hendricks for me, where every year I'm just like, nope, and every year I'm wrong. <laughs> but I want to know, Frank, who you have ahead of him that Scott doesn't. So this was particularly for Roto. I have Max Freed ahead of him. I have Max Freed at SP25, which is very high, and then I have Ryu at 41. So I, I think what it might come down to is just a difference in what we're looking for at that point in the draft, because normally... I'll have two or three starting pitchers by then, and for the middle of my, I guess, fantasy rotation, I, I want to take some swings for upside there. And I, I think someone like, you know, maybe, I, look, they're not going to do what Ryu did last year, but we also don't think Ryu is going to do what he did last year. So I like the chances of someone like Max Freed. I've talked a lot about Matthew Boyd, who I have ranked higher, uh, Julio Arias, in a shortened season, even if he's only going, you know, five innings in a roto league, I think he could be better. James Paxton, I have higher. They're basically back to back in ADP. Uh, Denelson Lamette, Lamette's in a risky one, but the strikeouts could be massive for someone like Denelson Lamette on a on a per start on a per inning basis. Even like David Price and Kenta Maeda, I think have a lot more strikeout upside in a roto league. So, those are some of the names that I have higher than than Ryu Adam. Okay. Well, that's very nice. Yeah. <laughs> I would I would say the biggest thing is ERA downside by comparison to Ryu for those guys. That scares me away. Fair enough. I uh yeah, I, I think the ERA will be a little bit higher. And I just worry a lot about the uh the injury concerns when it comes to Ryu. But let's move on to a closer. One that you mentioned last week, Scott, and I've been I've been wanting to talk about this one for a while here. Riceli Glacius of the Cincinnati Reds. I have him as my 13th ranked relief pitcher in Roto, a $9 auction value. You have him as your 26th ranked relief pitcher, a $2 auction value. And last year for me really stands out as the outlier for Rysel Iglesias. Did give up more home runs, but was dealing with the juice ball, the ERA up over four, the whip over 1.2. It it was not a great year for Iglesias. There's no doubting that. But the previous three seasons before that, you're dealing with a 2.53 ERA or less, a 1.14 whip or less, 28 or more saves in each of the past three seasons, a 15.5% swinging strike rate last year. That was top 25 for a reliever. Career high K per nine, 11.96. He is the closer for his team. I understand there might be some competition there if he were to falter, but I think you could say that for a lot of the relief pitchers that are kind of those mid-tier guys. The Reds are expected to be competitive, I'm just not sure how you can have someone like Gallegos ranked ahead of him. You don't even know if Gallegos is definitely the closer. Uh, Hansel Robles, 
has only really done it for what four months of his career where he was the closer for a team. Uh, Archie Bradley, we have concerns, the walk rate versus the strikeout rate for him. So, I mean, those are some names that stood out to me. Even Sean Doolittle's an injury risk. So, uh, I, I just frankly trust Rysel Iglesias more than you. Why do you not trust Rysel Iglesias? Yeah, I, it's it's a two-year trend that he's become home run prone. Uh, the home run rate actually spiked in 2018, and he managed to salvage a 2.38 ERA in spite of it. But the FIP was 4.23. The FIP was actually worse in 2018 than in 2019. So with that home run spike, I, I kind of feel like he got lucky in 2018. But because it continued down the same ERA trend, a lot of people didn't notice. Iglesias seems pretty vulnerable to me. He came pretty close to losing his job a couple times last year. And uh, Michael Lorenzen got seven saves. They're kind of weird, the Reds, and how they use Iglesias. Like, they don't always use him like a traditional closer, so it seems like his saves upside suffers because of that. And Lorenzen got seven saves last year. Jared Hughes got seven saves in 2018. That's that's a high number for the backup closer there in back-to-back years. And then if because he's become home run prone in the last couple years, he's he's kind of yeah on the verge of losing his job constantly and he had geez he lost 12 games last year Rysel Iglesias that's a yeah. 12 record that's amazing 3 and 12 that is a yeah, massive incredible. number of losses for a reliever uh, yeah um <laughs> i i actually see him as vulnerable and i know this is kind of it's one of the few really statement rankings i have where i you know i try not to get that far off from the consensus usually because um you know, I, I I don't want I don't want my rankings to be the cause of somebody reaching for somebody in a draft when, you know, they could they could wait to get him. But I I purposely buried Iglesias because I'm just I'm just scared of him. I I want no part of him. I could maybe be convinced to move him ahead of Archie Bradley and Sean Doolittle. Those are the two guys I have directly ahead of Iglesias, but not Robles who uh, doesn't. Like Joe Madden's pretty much said he's going to stick with Robles. Blows. Robles is the closer, and he was fine last year in the role. Not Gallegos, who I think has too much upside. I understand it could, they could just go with somebody else, and uh, it ends up being a waste to pick. But we're so far down in the relief pitcher rankings that in most standard formats, I think you could recover from, from uh, a guy like Gallegos not end up getting not ending up getting saved. It's worth the gamble for the upside. Let's not forget about Pedro Strope, who's now on the Reds, who's coming off a bad year with the Cubs, but also he was hurt most of the year. So I don't know how healthy he was. Before that, Pedro Strope was one of the most consistent, really good relievers in baseball. I mean, you're talking probably four or five years in a row with an ERA under three. And he could take over that role if Iglesias struggles. I do agree that it just seems like Iglesias was so consistent three years in a row in terms of ERA, in terms of whip, in terms of strikeouts. Then last year is a bad year. And most of that was in non-save situations. He was pretty good in save situations. He wasn't as good as he typically is, but he was still pretty good. His September was brilliant. Uh, There's a lot to like about Iglesias. I mean, you could look at, say, Ken Giles and say, well, two years ago, I think it was Ken Giles was... Did not give up. Like, I don't think he blew one save, but he had a terrible year because every time they used him in a non-save situation, he was dreadful. Well, the Blue Jays then started using him the right way, and he had a really good year. So maybe the Reds just need to 
commit to him in save situations. Maybe last year was just an outlier. That makes sense, Frank. I don't like that Lorenzen could get saves. I don't like that they don't use Iglesias as a typical closer. I don't like that Pedro Strope is there. And as Scott mentioned, the home runs. I don't like the home runs. So there's definitely some risk. I would take him over Hansel Robles. Um, Robles got, needs to keep the walks under control. He finally did last year. If he does that, he might be good. But I'd like to see him do that another year. Uh, his walk rate had been over four every year since 2015 before last season. I like Archie Bradley more than everyone, but you know that's that's just me. I don't remember some of the other names you said. I'd probably take Doolittle over Iglesias. Mm, I don't find myself drafting a lot of Iglesias, but I do think there's a real chance that he ends up being a steal because there there's a lot of ways things could go very right for him. Yeah. I usually wind up with him as my second closer whenever I'm doing a roto draft just based on where some of these guys go. It's just a fair range that you can get him in. Um, but yeah, look, it's I understand there's competition there, but uh, I think he's actually performed quite well the past three seasons. The command got better last year as well. So uh, yeah, Rysel Iglesias, one that... Um, Looks like we're going to differ on here, Scott. I don't, I don't see you moving him anywhere up the rankings, at least nowhere close to where I've got him. So. No. No. No, you're, you, I yeah, think you're, you're closer three, to the consensus Frank. on uh, this yeah. one. I don't know that I've convinced Scott of anything. I'm good at that, <laughs> Frank. You have work to do. You have work to do. <laughs> I've got to step it up. <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break here. We come back. We're going to tell, talk to you about how to buy low and sell highs. It's still a real thing. We'll talk about that next here on Fantasy Baseball Today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Worn by players like Michael Harris to meet the demand of elite ball players, the New Balance Fuel Cell 4040 V7 is a versatile option. The 4040 V7 is built for the athlete who needs responsiveness and ability to cut and run at their full speed. The model features a fuel cell foam underfoot and a synthetic and mesh upper to provide breathability, comfort, and a snug fit as you round the bases. The fuel cell midsole features nitrogen-infused foam specifically designed to propel athletes forward. Learn more about the 4040 at newbalance.com. Alrighty, we're back. How to buy low, how to sell high. Easier said than done. Guys, I, I, just, I like to do a little general strategy discussion every Wednesday here on the show. And I just wanted to get your thoughts because it seems like it's so it's so easy to say in the fantasy industry, oh, this, pl- this player is a buy low, this player is a sell high. But something we also say about uh, specifically people who play fantasy baseball is that the industry has become smarter. So people realize what you're trying to do when you're trying to buy low or sell high on a player. I, I looked at two specific players from last season. Jack Flaherty, at the All-Star break, had a 4.64 ERA, a 4.74 FIP, and a 4.11 XFIP. There really wasn't much there that said he was going to get better outside of just watching him and seeing that he had better stuff than the numbers indicated. 
And on the flip side of that, someone like Domingo Santana, Scott, I know that you talked about this in your dynasty league that you tried your hardest to sell off Domingo Santana last year. His first 90 games, the guy had a triple slash 286, 354, 496 with 18 home runs. He was great. But yeah. nobody wanted to buy Domingo Santana because they knew what you were trying to do. And again, with Flaherty, it's like, was it just a blind faith thing uh-huh. of trying to buy him because he has better stuff than the numbers actually indicated? So I kind of wanted to present both cases and ask, you know, is is the is the buy low, sell high dead in fantasy baseball? I, I'm not even confident I was selling low on Domingo Santana. Maybe it was interpreted that way, but... But that that kind of gets to what you're saying is that you you start playing these mind games with people who know what they're doing. I mean, I don't play. I, of course, I play in a lot of industry leagues and and people who write about fantasy baseball for a living. You can you can trust they know what they're doing. Uh, at least I think you can. Um, but you know, even in leagues that I play with friends, I mean, they've done it for long enough that I don't feel like I don't feel like there's a the level of difficulty changes playing between the fantasy civilians that I play with and then the fantasy warriors that are in the industry, you know? So what I often say on this podcast when it comes to buying low and selling high is that it's really hard to do and particularly labeling somebody a sell high. I'm reluctant to do it because I feel like I feel like the way that gets interpreted sometimes is sell at all costs. Like, oh my goodness, this guy's going to collapse and leave me high and dry if I don't move him right now. So somebody ends up taking less than they deserve to get for a guy because, you know, they they just hear that, that they're supposed to sell him. Um. But, you know, I'm talking about that's somebody who listens to the podcast versus the kind of leagues I play in, which I guess, you know, that's kind of an incongruous idea I presented there. But I just I, I, I have a difficult time with the buy low, sell high concept because I find it's difficult to pull off in the kind of leagues I tra- I I uh, I traffic in. And I find it's hard to give advice for because people don't necessarily understand what they're supposed to be getting back when they are buying high buying low or selling high adam is it just so easy that it's easier to pull off in you know a random home league versus an industry league is it just that we've played in too many leagues together where you know we all kind of know the value of players whereas you know in someone's home league not to sound elitist or anything, uh, it might be easier to pull off like a buy low versus sell high scenario? Probably, but I also think that maybe we're wrong and maybe we're doubting guys and they end up being good. I actually think that what's more fun and productive these days is buy high. When a guy gets off to a good start and everybody wants to dismiss that player. I agree. Yeah, you buy that player. You try to find the underlying stats that make you feel like the, the breakout is legit. Uh, now, now, that's even harder to give advice for because if people if people don't interpret what exact... If people have a hard time interpreting exactly what you should be getting back in a sell-high scenario, a buy-high scenario, that's even more dangerous to advise somebody about. But just my own activity and my own leagues, I find myself proposing those kinds of trades more often because... 
I know I'm not going to pull off a sell high against a bunch of other people who are telling people to sell high on this player as well. What I, what I'm more likely to do is a player who's having a hot start, like you said, Adam, appears to be breaking out. I get the sense that maybe I'm out ahead of the industry on believing in it. And maybe I can convince them they're pulling off the sell high by, you know, trading him to me, the sucker Mm -hmm. who is willing to buy into him already. But, you know, based on my perception of the player, I'm, I, I obviously don't feel like I'm giving up too much. So that, that ends up being the kind of trades I propose more often now, nowadays. Yeah. If if you're going to sell someone too, if you're trying to sell high on someone, you know, sell high on someone that you still think is going to be good, uh, not but not this good. I remember a few years ago, I called Dexter Fowler a great sell high, and I got some pushback because it wasn't one of those situations where like, oh, okay, well, he's Aaron Harang, where he sucks, and even though he's off to a great start, you know, I didn't mean for it that Dexter Fowler is going to be terrible. Dexter Fowler is going to be useful, and whoever I trade him to is going to have a, a fine player, but I'm going to get back a great player. Um, also we talk about this a lot, two for one, you put a sell high guy and another player in there and you get one player back. And that one player is by far the best player in the deal. You do that. You just have to get a little bit more creative these days in a lot of leagues because people, uh, people know what they're doing. I mean, Hyunjin Ryu has been one of the best pitchers in baseball two years in a row. And he's like the 30 something, 30 something pitcher off the board on draft day. You know, people know what they're doing. It is harder to pull off, but Buy high is a is a fun one, and if you if you just want to talk about how to make a buy low, how to find a buy low, you look at track record. Uh, a sell high, you look at plate discipline for hitters. If a guy like Austin Riley was striking out way too much, there was no way it was going to keep up. And actually, people were making a lot of trades for Austin Riley. That was really interesting stuff. Uh, there was we talked about him almost every day because he was homering almost every day. So it's not completely dead. Um, Plate discipline is a good indicator of what might happen in the future, which is why Domingo Santana was uh, someone that Scott was trying to unload. There are things, there are signs that not everybody's going to be uh, attuned to, I guess. So it could still happen, but it's obviously harder. And you might have to throw in a little bit more than you used to. I guess I'd say that. I just looked at the ERA leaders from March and April last year. Zach Davies was number one by the end of April with a one three eight ERA. I don't think yeah, you were you getting. Couldn't have, you, you couldn't have sold any. You couldn't have <laughs> yeah. sold them for anything. It's right. Just, I can't imagine yeah. a league in 2020. I mean, people would have to be so tuned out of fantasy baseball that they're not going to be responding to trade offers anyway. To not like to just not hear from somewhere that okay, Zach Davies isn't really this good. You know, it, so, I don't know. Right. Do, do does does that do leagues exist? Where somebody is able to trade high on Zach Davies still when he gets off to that kind of start, even no. you know, even though there's obviously no low strikeouts and everything else. I remember last year, um, Austin Riley, when he got called up and remember homered nine times in his first eighteen games. I, I just brought him up. Okay, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> but people. But well, do you agree with me, Scott? What I said was that people were actually giving you a decent return for Austin Riley. People, I think you might be able to sell high on prospects because everybody gets giddy over prospects. (sighs) I feel like you could, I feel like we knew knew because he was striking out so much, we knew that eventually he was going to crater. Right. But I I, I wrote an, I would have gotten better return than, than you would have expected for him. I, I wrote an article 
right towards the tail end of that hot streak, probably right at the very end of it, nine home runs in 18 games, saying Austin Riley is the ultimate sell-high candidate, and, and here's why. Um, but, you know, I, I left room for him still being an asset and, you know, explained in there you need to be careful what you get in return. I, I wasn't expecting him to totally crater, but I acknowledged that was a possibility as well. We just don't know where he's going to go from here, but it's a pretty safe bet he's not going to be, you know, one of the league leaders, the, the league leader in home runs from this point forward. Um, and I got a lot of flack for it. So I guess just the amount of flack I got for it would suggest you would have been able to sell high on him. I just feel like it's so easy as a player playing fantasy to just wait and see, you know, 18 games into a guy's career, even though he has nine home runs, what does it hurt you to wait a couple more weeks and see how things go? If, if somebody's already demanding the moon and the stars for him, like how is the price tag going to go up from there? It could only go down. So I, I don't, I don't, I have a hard time putting myself in the mindset of somebody who would fall for buying for buying high on Austin Riley. Uh, but it, it of course comes down to, in the end, it comes down to the actual players being exchanged, right? Which is why that I find this to be a difficult conversation to talk about because buying high on Riley might look different for some for one person than than for another and it it really just comes down to what specific player is being given up yeah and frank i wonder if the new era of selling high on a guy like zach davies if you have a guy who's off to a good start and you think that realistically he's going to be on waivers in the next few weeks you just know his track record do you just try to sell him for a two-star pitcher that could win you a week do you try to sell him for a backup player, somebody that, that's on somebody's bench that got drafted in like the 15th round? You know, if you just know that this guy, that the Zach Davies or whoever, there, there's going to be guys that are just not that good and we know it. Um, do you just sell him for anything? Because eventually you're going to have to drop him. Or, well, I guess you could just wait it out. But he might yeah. be, in your opinion, he might be the worst player on your roster but you can't justify dropping him right now because he's playing too well. I hate that. You know, you know it in your heart, you know that it's okay to drop him, but you just can't do it in case you're wrong based on what's happened in the first month or so of the season. I maybe, maybe you just go with your gut and you say, I'm just trying to get whatever I can for this guy before I have to put him on waivers. The problem is Adam, as much as you think, you know, you never really know because you might've said that about Gilito last year based on the season he had the year before. You know, the first couple of months, he might have said, all right, well, I'm not completely buying it. Let me just sell this guy off for anything. Same thing with someone like Frankie Montas. We've never seen him do it before, right? He's been so bad in his career. It's just so hard to say for certain, which I know what you're saying. It's like It seems like, all right, well, it's Zach Davies. He's got a 5.7K per nine and a three and a half walks per nine through the first month of the season with an ERA under two. It seems so easy, but... I don't think it is, man. I don't, and that's why I wanted no, to it's have. Not. I mean, yeah. I think it is with Davies, but yeah. I, I, I would say I would never have dropped Giolito if he had gotten off the hot start. But Montas, I may have thought of in the same way I thought of Davies, but at least we knew he had the splitter, and I probably would yeah. have seen where that went. There wasn't a lot peripherally suggesting Davies would be able to keep it up, but I would have been hesitant to trade him for somebody else who I had 
I, you know, someone else who I'd be just as likely to put on waivers, like you were talking about, like a two-start streamer or whatever. I'd, I'd have to trade him for somebody who I thought had, um, who I was convinced I wouldn't be dropping, you know? Yeah. yeah I mean, you want to keep an open mind with everybody and that includes Zach Davies, even when the peripherals don't, don't really back it up. And so you, you, you can't just give him away, but you can, if, if you're, if it's somebody like that, who you're, who it's the, the odds are so long of him actually maintaining anything close to that level of production, just getting somebody back who, you know, is going to be consistently useful for you. I, I think that's a win. I think that's a, that's a successful sell high in a situation like that. The last point that I'll make, and, and originally when you said this, Adam, I agreed with you because for the most part, when a prospect first gets called up and you try and sell them, that's when they're, it seems like their value is going to be at its peak. You can get a player that can consistently contribute for you. Um, you can usually trade those prospects away for a decent amount. The problem is one out of 10 of those prospects is going to be a league winner. And if you trade that player away, you're going to feel terrible. Like, Jordan Alvarez, for example, last year was a league winner. A couple of years ago, Gary Sanchez got called up and was a league winner. So, it's again, it's it's just a risky proposition where originally in my mind, I was like, yeah, you're right. Like, you should try and sell, but there's always going to be one or two of those prospects specifically who are going to come up and do something we've never seen before because it's a young man's game. These guys are just coming yeah. up, more and more of them, and they're dominating. Scott said something a few years ago that has always stuck with me. I'm not even sure if he still believes it or if he even remembers saying it, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure he said he only accepts trades when he feels like it's like a slam dunk. Uh, that's that's pretty much true. I mean, it, and I, I've sort of taken to that, and I think I, I can't say every time I've accepted a trade I felt that way, but that's that's usually like I have to I have to have pretty much no doubt that I'm making the right decision. It's gotten to be because because the industry has gotten so much sharper and, and the introduction of new analytics has kind of made things more difficult to dispute, made it hard to have divergent takes from other people. It, it's gotten harder to make trades in general. And so they're probably I, I probably relaxed my how confident I have to be to make a trade just to make a trade. But I think I think the biggest thing that happens is I just trade a lot less because it's a lot harder to do. And I, I want to be totally confident. Oh, I am winning up. a trade in order to make the trade. That's why I, everybody, everybody gets mad at me for making Azer trade offers, but I can't make fair trade offers. Cause like, that's not the point. Yeah. The, the point of a trade is to win, <laughs> you know, like I, and then I don't want to, I don't want to lose a trade just to make a trade. It's not, it's not fun. Remember how confident I was in you, Darvish, or at least how confident I expressed to be in you, Darvish, for the first half when he was struggling? Mm-hmm. I mean, I thought there was sound reasoning behind a major turnaround coming for for you, Darvish. So I, I, I wasn't I wasn't being intellectually dis- dishonest there when I argued for it. But of course, I had doubts deep down. I was I was worried oh, yeah. about it. I. One of my best trades I pulled off last year was it was actually in Tout Wars, and I gave up uh, Clint Frazier when he was during a stretch where he was starting for the Yankees and performing pretty well. This was probably some point in May, like late May. I gave up Clint Frazier and a big wad of Fab Bucks for you, Darvish, who at the time was terrible. And 
I wasn't totally confident in it. I that that might have been a trade where, um, you know, in past years or in a or in a year where it wasn't so obvious that high end starting pitcher was going to be that impactful, like clearly the most impactful thing and impossible to buy outright. So you had to kind of hunt for the, the for the the underachieving high end pitcher. Um, I I don't think I would have made that trade. Obviously, it it ended up being a huge trade for me because Clint Frazier faded and lost his job, and Darvish obviously had this monster second half. But it was it was a it was a trade I was not totally confident in at the time I made it. Alrighty, before we get to our questions, there you go. Round of applause for Scott. <laughs> Scott. I get it, man. That's that's cool. That's a smart trade. Before we get to our questions, just want to remind everybody to listen to the Cover 3 podcast. College football is inching closer, which means it's the perfect time to unveil off-season rankings. All throughout May, the Cover 3 podcast team has been counting down their preseason top 25 in separate episodes, and this week they'll focus on the top five. And don't worry about a huge time commitment. Chip Patterson and company have been breaking down each team in their Hurry Up Hot Seat series in under 15 minutes. Where will Clemson and Ohio State rank? Bringing back the top two quarterbacks in the country. Will Alabama crack the top three after losing Tua? Each day this week, the Cover 3 podcast has all your answers about the very best teams in the nation. Download and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and wherever else podcasts are found. We're going to get to the Logan Gilbert prospect evaluation tomorrow. Continue to send those in. Give us your five-star Apple podcast rating and review. Drop a prospect in there that you want us to talk about and... We will evaluate said prospect here on the show. Logan Gilbert, coming soon. Someone I drafted in my most recent Dynasty draft, so kind of interested to talk about. But questions, let's get to it. Fantasy Baseball at CBSI.com. This one comes from Wes from Oakland. Hi, Nate, Spencer, Wander, Joe, Dylan, and Gore. That's a lot of names. Six names. A lot of prospects. What do these prospects have in common? Mm, You're about to find out. In Yahoo leagues, players aren't in the Yahoo player pool until they are added to a team's 40-man roster. Yuck. Thus, hot prospects and unsigned free agents like Yasiel Puig aren't available to be drafted or picked up after the draft until they are called up or signed. Look, I'm not going to sit here and just rag on Yahoo, but this is a terrible (laughs) rule. Is that true? That is, I mean, (laughs) if this is is true... It might just be it might just be a setting in this specific league. If that's the case, please shut it off. If this is something that's in all Yahoo leagues, yeah, man, that is, is that is not good. This leads to a highly competitive and strategic fab game when these players are called up slash signed. My Yahoo Keeper League allows us to keep two to five players from year to year at their draft cost. Waiver wire pickups are round twelve. Thus, if these players are as studly as we hope they are. They become huge keeper values, i.e. Ronald Acuna, Juan Soto, Pete Alonso, Yordan Alvarez, Vlad Guerrero Jr., etc. Some owners, including myself, save all $100 of our fab budget to win one of these players. I, quote, struck out last year targeting Nick Senzel. So which of these most likely to be called up rookies should I target with my $100? Also taking into consideration how long they'll be able to contribute to my team this year. The ones I'm most interested in are the names I've listed. 14-team, 6 by 6 head-to-head categories league. So basically, the six names that he listed are all available in his league. But it sounds like he can't spend his fab on said players until they are added to the 40-man roster. 
I see. I see. There's no guarantee Wander Franco is. I mean, he's obviously the top prospect in baseball right now. Uh, but there's no guarantee he's up this year. There was some talk of it back in February, but even then it was theoretical and it was in a very different season. I don't know if his chances are higher now of making the roster or lower. I would think lower, but you know, you could make the case for higher with expanded rosters and whatnot. Well, Scott, um, are there any, any of the prospects that he listed? Uh-huh. Nate, Spencer, Wander, Joe, Dylan Gore. Uh-huh. <laughs> are any of them like break the bank fab budget guys? And he's yeah. saying that he would that he would spend almost all of his money on one of these guys instead of using it to stream two star pitchers and stuff. And right. I, I, that I don't get at all. That's a that's right. a terrible strategy. You need you can't spend all your money on prospects. Like you got to manage well, your when roster. Well, when the the keeper rewards are that great, sure you can. I mean, are zero dollar bids not allowed? Especially when zero dollar bids are allowed. There are two to five keepers year to year. There are other owners in the league who do the same exact thing. So he's not the only person. It, it sounds like there's yeah. multiple people well, who save guy, all their fat. One guy last year, one owner last year spent most of his money on Nick Senzel. Okay. So, all right. So what I was getting to before I was so rudely interrupted, Adam. <laughs> Sorry. No, Wander Franco <laughs> would be worth breaking the bank for, but I'm not sure you can wait around confident that he is going to get called up and just stockpiling those dollars, passing up other opportunities. I think I would do it for Wander Franco. I would do it for Mackenzie Gore, who I'm more confident will be called up this year. Um, and I would probably do it for Joe Adele, too. I agree. Uh, but, like, the first of those three that gets called up, probably Gore is who it would be. I, I would go for it. And just, you know... Take your chance with him. You can't. Uh, you can't take the chance that those other two actually get called up. Yeah, I would. How about Dylan Carlson? He's not in that mix for you, Scott. No, he's not. I'm not as confident in the ceiling. I'm not as confident that Dylan Carlson gets called up and, based on his performance, will want to take him as early as round twelve next year. Especially as prevalent as offense is. He's he's not in that category for me, though I wouldn't I wouldn't be opposed if he was for you. Uh, fair enough. No, I agree on the upside. I think Mackenzie Gore and and Joe Adele were definitely two names that were on my list. Uh, real quick, part two of this question, which I guess Adam kind of answered already. Are any of you not on board with spending all of my fab on one rookie <laughs> and would rather instead spend it on streaming the week's top two star pitchers or saving it for a later season call up? So that sounds like you, Adam. Yeah. Oh, I think it's a terrible idea. It, it depends. I, look, if there's if there's nothing on waivers, then fine. But you're talking about a 14 team league, and you got to get yourself. You got to navigate through the season, and one minor leaguer is just as likely to have no impact on your team as a great impact on your team. So I don't look. This email, Wes knows his league. If this works in your league, then fine. I've never played in this format. Never played in this with these specifications. I, it, just top of mind, reading it, I don't see how you'd be able to really get through the year spending all your money on a minor leaguer. If I can add one thing, does it have to be this way? Are you the commissioner? Do you have any influence on the commissioner? It seems like a way around this kind of silly game happening with the call-ups and everybody having to blow their entire fab budget on them to secure them for next year is 
make the round that they're kept in proportional to the amount of fab dollars paid for them. So that if somebody's paying a hundred percent of their fat, a hundred dollars for them in fab dollars, they have to keep them with a first round pick versus somebody pays $1 in fab dollars for him. They keep them for their last round pick and obviously make it proportional that that way you get kind of this tension of, okay, I want to get this guy and keep him. But if I pay too much for him, I'll end up, it won't, it'll be, it'll be more than I want to keep them for. So I got to keep the bid down so that it's an appropriate keeper cost. And yet I want high enough that I actually win him. I, I think that's, that's a way to prevent this from happening if you're able to do it. Or come play at CBS where you can draft prospects. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This next one's from Sean in a city in Canada. That's not Toronto or Vancouver. Isn't this a bit that you do with Dave Richard on the football show? Oh, Adam? Yeah, He's the geography guy. How about you? Do you know any cities in Canada? Not- I, the only cities I know are Toronto and Vancouver. I do not know any other Canadian cities. I don't believe you. So we'll go <laughs> not with... Not even the one... I don't even remember where the Canadians play. That hockey town. <laughs> what about the Expos? You remember where they play? Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I don't. They're in Washington, D.C. <laughs> what about the Flames? <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, but I, cities, provinces, I don't know. Uh, sometimes I get those mixed up. What guys. about the capital? Oh, you mentioned this. Never mind. Yeah. Dear Alfred, Miles, Nigel, and Cutter. Those are, what's that actor's name? Michael Caine character. What's that actor's name? <laughs> I'm in a 10-team head-to-head points league with six keepers. Due to the pandemic, we have delayed our draft and our keeper selection deadline. I planned on keeping Snell, Carrasco, Gallon, Flaherty, and Sonny Gray. Some great starting pitchers. I also... I am also a Chris Sale owner, but given the injury, I didn't want to waste a keeper spot for an IL guy. Given the question marks around how the season will look, if it happens at all, and the small sample sizes causing some potentially wacky results for pitchers, would it make sense to now maybe keep Sale and prepare for the 2021 season with the thought that nothing that happens in 2020 will be useful in projecting 2021? We don't know how early Sale will be back in 2021. He might end up end up missing half that season. Uh, I don't think we can be totally confident how good he'll be when, we, when he gets back. And I feel like the pitchers you're keeping instead all have enough ceiling that you know, you're, you're, not, you're not definitively better off even in 2021 by keeping sale instead. So no, I'd stick with what you have. Adam, agree? I could see keeping sale over Gray, but I think I mostly agree. The last email we'll get to today from Matthew Zettel. Remember a few weeks ago, a commiss traded Tim Anderson and John Gray for Jose Ramirez and Josh James? We have a follow-up. Oh. This is in response to what Mr. Nick Edgar wrote below regarding the trade the commissioner, a.k.a. me, made. Oh, some drama. Made with the new owner of the league. Yes, he is a novice owner, and yes, the trade was a total rip job. However... He only gave you a small portion of the overall story. Oh, man. After feeling really bad and realizing it was a bad look as commish, I offered Jose Altuve as further compensation to balance out the trade. The owner refused the Altuve offer, stating he was a huge Yankee fan and that he did not want cheating Astros on his team. He said he wanted Edwin Encarnacion instead, and then he would be happy with that as compensation. I obliged, even though he really should have taken Altuve, also, I think we can all say we have made terrible offers in any of our leagues. Most of the time, you don't actually think they will get accepted. 
It's just to start negotiations. Yes, sounds of course. Like, sounds like an Azer offer. That's exactly <laughs> what it is. It's just to start negotiations. That's exactly what it is. Thank you. Yeah. So in the end, my punishment was Edwin, and it should have been Altuve. This is one of so, the weirder stories I've heard of in a fantasy league. So it's the tra- very weird. trade was actually Tim Anderson, Edwin Encarnacion, and John Gray for Jose Ramirez and Josh James. Still terrible. It yeah, is not, it is it, not that terrible if Tim Anderson is good again. Right. It, it's it's still not a trade I would take at all, but it's, you know, I, I don't think it's vetoable. It, I don't think it's... Um, I agree, it's not vetoable. Something to consider kicking a guy out of the league for. So it, it does change things. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... I mean Shoot, he the commissioner didn't have to do that. He didn't have to offer him anything as compensation. He just put an offer out there. The guy accepted it. I mean, what are you supposed to do? Um, he's policing himself, I think, above and beyond what is required. I, I don't know. I don't I honestly don't remember the original email we got, and I don't remember what I said then, and maybe I totally lambasted the commissioner. But uh hearing his side of it, I don't uh I don't have a problem with at all with the way things went down here. The problem was initially the commission had talked the owner out of trading Jose Ramirez for a better package. Oh, and then he offered him junk for Jose Ramirez? <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, was so that nasty. part of it? Very, very sneaky. I, you know what? The commissioner should be forced <laughs> to, to take Jose Altuve and have a cheating Astro on his team. <laughs> Well, forced to the, give. The commissioner has the Astros. Yeah. He, the, the commissioner has Oh, L2. whatever. Dude, I can't keep up with this. <laughs> just end the show, Frank. All right. You heard it there. Adam's making me end the show. We came up with a new word, vetoable. Going to add that to the dictionary. For Scott and Adam, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening. We'll be back again on Thursday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.